Hey everyone, it's been a while since there's been a new episode. I thought I would just share a couple of announcements and an update from my perspective. I um, haven't had a chance to record as many episodes. Life has been busy. Kind Wealth has been getting busier and busier. I'm in the process of bringing on a new partner there and we've made a shift in kind of a target market and revamping the branding and website and all that. So that's exciting, fun times. But I also took on some consulting work with Criterion Institute, which is one of the organizations I've had on the podcast. Joy Anderson, who is the founder of Criterion, was on on episode 30-something, 20-something, 30-something. Anyway, on gender equality, Joy is one of the you know, people responsible for the entire field of gender lens investing. And their work is really focused on how to shift power dynamics and finance from those who don't have it, it's from a very select, concentrated group of individuals to the much larger group of people, women, non-binary folks, people of color who, who haven't had access to the same power and to increase the number of people who see themselves as being able to use finance as a tool for change. And so if you're interested in that work, ch- check out criterioninstitute.org. They do, the website is being refreshed and improved, but there is a lot of great content if you kind of dig through the site there. They hold a number of events and, and all that. So if you're interested in that work, please uh, reach out to me. I'm actually in the process of helping Joy launch her own podcast. Joy's been around for doing this work for 20 years now and has just a ton of amazing insights. And and so this podcast is really exciting because she's going to be able to kind of share lots of those lessons, insights, frameworks. I will announce that once it's ready to go, probably in the next month or two. And I hope you'll check it out once it's, once it's ready to go. Just one other quick announcement before we get into this week's episode. There is an organization in Colombia called the I2, and it's an angel uh, investor group focusing on early stage ventures in Colombia. And they're looking for a part for folks who want to become part of their unique network and can really contribute to the development of Colombia as a country. So if this is interesting for you, you'll want to check out the show notes where I've dropped a link to the organization. I'm going to read it quickly now, but it's Medellin, so M-E-D-E-L-I-N dot impacthub.net forward slash I2 dash impact dash investing. That's the URL if you want to check it out. But if you otherwise just go to the show notes for this episode and you'll find the link there. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. In an era already notable for remarkable technological innovation, we're approaching a precipice that could potentially make the last 30 years of progress seem quaint by comparison. The dawn and convergence of artificial intelligence, genome sequencing, robotics, energy storage, and the blockchain tend to fundamentally disrupt the status quo as we know it. The advent of the blockchain, for instance, has led to a paradigm shift known as Web3. This paradigm shift is seeing a move away from the closed protocols that have dominated software development over the past 20 years where the Twitters, Facebooks, and Googles of the world own their user data and collect the lion's share of the economic value, and instead moving to a world of open-sourced development 
where creators and communities share the economics and users own their own data. Already terms like DeFi, which is sort for decentralized finance, DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations and NFTs, non-fungible tokens are ent entering the common vernacular, even if many of us still don't quite understand them. At their best, innovations like this will allow people to work collaboratively in ways that allow communities to form, allow people to share ownership, establish good governance, and operate transparently. Already, though, there are those who worry that the promise of Web3 is being co-opted by a small number of wealthy individuals looking to turn that opportunity to their advantage. Enter today's guest, Michael Lukowitz, co-founder and general partner at Possibilian Ventures, a pre-seed seed investor in companies building a better future across the transition and cooperation economies. What makes Possibilian particularly interesting is that it's focused on supporting founders who are leveraging these converging technological breakthroughs to unlock true systems change to address the two biggest existential threats we face, climate change and inequality. During the episode, Michael and I discussed Possibilian's unique thesis, five areas of transition we're currently experiencing, the definition of terms like Web3, DeFi, NFTs, and DAOs, why Web3 could massively disrupt the status quo, and examples of investments that Possibilian is making into companies leveraging these technologies for systemic change. Be sure to stay tuned to the very end, where Michael shares his outlook for what possibilities these new technologies could enable over the next decade. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great, great to be doing this. Yeah, I'm excited because I have been going down, starting down the Web3 rabbit hole um, and we connected, we were connected through mutual contact and, and you're friends with Kareem Harji and I've, who, who I also know, and I had been introduced to Possibilian through Kareem probably about maybe 12 months ago and didn't make the connection anyway, made that connection. And then we got to chat and I found out you were pretty far down that rabbit hole yourself. And so I'm, I'm excited because your Possibilian is not just about web three, but looking to unlock innovation for systemic uh, change and impact. And so maybe I'll just let you introduce yourself and Possibilian. What are you guys yeah. working on and what are you hoping to do? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm Michael. I'm partnered with Kareem on something called Possibilian Ventures. And where we're really focused is on investing in early stage companies that leverage technology to unlock societal innovation. And for us, that means that the fundamental solutions that are trying to address the impending growing existential crises of climate and inequality. And what we have been observing is that there's a whole like kind of been describing as twin economies of transition and cooperation of we need to do some pretty systemic shifts in how we structure and organize society. And so that's what's led us down this path. And it goes everywhere from deep energy technologies and data for decarbonization into finance and this whole realm of web three. So it's been fascinating to, to follow this systemic lens through to how we use venture to remake the future. Yeah. Let's unpack that, that a little <laughs> bit. There's a lot, there's a lot in there. I've been through one of your presentations where you're kind of talking a lot about the, the thesis. And so 
let's maybe start with you. You've talked about the two biggest existential threats, I, which I, you know, I think a lot of us agree. I certainly do climate and inequality or seem like the two big ones. And, and the key here is you're looking for kind of systemic change, right? We're not looking to put band-aids on or immediate relief of these issues, but systemic changes that can make a meaningful dent in solving these problems. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think of it as interesting, like we, we're thinking of it as there's a unique moment that we're in right now where we have these waves of technology that have been coming up, increase in regulatory pressures and cultural awareness of that. The systems that got us here, our institutions, the structures, our ways of doing things that got us here, were really effective in some ways and in other ways they're letting us down and not giving us what we need. And as all these things converge, there's opportunities to reimagine how we might create those systems in ways that are, are different um, from how they were before. And so venture is a very interesting lens into that space of what could this future look like? What if, if we had all these tools and technologies and ideas a century ago, how might we have designed our society and our world? And that's what we're looking for is those that are trying to reimagine ways of doing things unbound by necessarily just trying to improve upon what exists, but what could a future look like that is systemically better able to improve well-being, improve prosperity and improve sustainability over the long term. And it feels like, it feels appropriate that venture seems like if you're going to do it, that's the place that's maybe best yeah. suited for it because in venture capital, effectively you're paid to take risk, right? If you're not taking yeah. risks in venture capital, you're not doing it. And this very much is exploring new possibilities. Yeah. And I think that's like, that's why I'm so like, I've long been a fan of venture and spent time in it as founder, as, as on the investment side. And what I've always believed is that venture is a really useful tool to bring innovations that are just about ready to come to market, to bring them to market in scale. And where we're at right now, venture has a particularly useful role is because a lot of these solutions or the, the things that are being enabled are enabled by technology and venture is uniquely suited to be able to do experiments and really push the boundary of bringing these things to market in new ways and ways that are interesting ways that are risky and unconventional, it's, it feels like it's the, the, the best application of venture capital. Yeah. As you say, it, it, it requires stakeholders that are not only willing to, but looking to, to find transformative ways of doing things like yeah. upending the, the status quo, which you just, just don't yeah. get in the more mature capital markets for, for sure. And arguably as well in the public sector. So. I was reading through one of your decks and you had an interesting kind of discussion of five of these sort of major trends that you were pointing to as witnessing and, and potentially expecting to continue. I'll list a few of them and you maybe can unpack whatever you want into that. Yeah. So it was like the from moving from the physical to the digital realm, moving from efficient yeah. to resilient, individual to collective, market driven to goal driven and division to solidarity. Can you talk a, bit, yeah. a little bit about that? <laughs> Yeah. And it's, it sounds like it's super squishy stuff, but it really gets at to gets that kind of an underlying mindset and in systems change, like 
anybody who spent time within it, you quickly get into mindsets and paradigms and all that. And it, it feels, and it's far from certain, but it feels like we are in a unique time where how we think about how we should organize ourselves is different than it used to be. It is influencing even the pandemic itself. If there is any kind of a, a, a silver lining, it is, there seems to be this broader recognition that the systems that we depend on in our communities, in our daily lives, aren't as effective and stable and secure as we thought they were, that our lives could be significantly disrupted by this external force in ways that we don't expect or don't anticipate. And so people seem to have a more, a, a broader appreciation for, hey, we're all a little bit at risk here from things like climate change, from things like inequality. And maybe we need solutions that help us all solve these problems or help us all move forward together. So that's one of the things that is coming out and, and those observations that, that we had, those five areas came out of really, they came out actually when we were right at the beginning of the pandemic is did a pretty broad survey of the writing that was coming up around what was going on and the latest in, in technological innovation. And it picked out the threads that, that I saw and I perceived that were like, what was fundamentally different about now? Like what's different about now than old paradigms of technological innovation, which are about efficiency, about how do we milk the system? How do we concentrate power? How do we do those kinds of things to the different ways that solutions were being expressed, the different ways that, that culture and, and people's concerns were being expressed. And it very much all seemed to, to, to lay out into wow, we really, we need to reimagine our supply chains. We need to reimagine where we stockpile our resources. We need to reimagine what does efficiency and stability look like? Is it efficiency or is it resilience? Mm -hmm. And as technologies are meeting these things, it opens up new possibilities like IOT, robotics, open up whole different ways around reimagining how you design a supply chain. And so it's all these forces mixing together and it, it's, it can be really hard to wrap our heads around, but it is, it, it's coming out of from a different underlying organizing paradigm, it seems is what we're heading into. Yeah. I, I love even that, that it was one of those five areas, like moving from, we've been optimizing for efficiency and, oh, wait a minute, maybe we should be optimizing for resilience. Those aren't the same thing. It's a really great example, poignant example of a paradigm shift in our thinking that, you know, is exacerbated by COVID, right? allows us yeah. to see the, the problem with optimizing for efficiency. This um, is where even like we see the, our centralized structures, like the things that have been designed for very good reason to be stable and strong and like robust on national scales, et cetera. But when really, how did we respond at the beginning? It was self-organizing happening in communities to respond, to build up the capacity before there were mandates, before there were specific guidelines on how to do things. It was the responses in communities and people saw that everywhere. And that is actually the symbol, this, the sign of, okay, we figure this out. Like people always come together to figure things out when things go haywire. And that is a really beautiful expression of what we're trying to talk about. So now it's a question of, so how do we leverage all these tools and technologies to enable that behavior? If that's what we depend on when we have disruption and instability or things are, things are changing, 
how do we enable those kinds of behaviors and what would it look like for those behaviors to ripple out through society? Yeah. And this sort of gets into, I think as one example, concrete, put something concrete on, on these ideas yeah. you're talking about and the whole, I I'm curious, I'd be curious to know how, what percentage of the audience listening is familiar with the term web three mm. and is aware that we are, I'll get you to talk, describe it, but yeah. we're in the midst of a pretty dramatic paradigm shift. So if web one was mass adoption of the internet at scale, web two yeah. being the creator, sort of the, the, you have the Googles and the Facebooks and the Twitter kind of developing off of this open architecture of the internet and then, but owning all of the data and owning the code and it's yeah. closed infrastructure. Web three is this evolution where you have created content creators actually owning the, the infrastructure and that the clients of the, the users actually can own their data. And so you don't have this kind of cut yeah. out this middleman. So effectively we've got, you can talk about this more, but we've got a, a way of organizing people to work on problems that is more effective and efficient and allows for people to come together and yeah. disrupt the, these powerful middlemen, really. Maybe yeah. talk a little bit about Web3 and yeah. how it ties into what we've just been talking about. Yeah, Web3 is, yeah, Web is fascinating and it's something that's caught a lot of people, I think, by surprise. And I, I certainly didn't expect it coming on in, in this way to look like this. I mean, it, and you can never really keep up with what it is, but you're, you're absolutely right in, in that arc of history of, of where the description of Web3 is Web1 was really the ability to read things on the internet. Web pages, people could put up something and you could read it. Web2 really became about these platforms where people could collaboratively write and read things. So you could post on in, into Facebook and you could read other people's posts into Facebook. And there was a time there where to create those things, it was technically really difficult. So the technology was hard and it favored setting up big companies to be able to do this, to create this technology. And that, that led to the patterns of these are big companies that then own all the data and that are doing these secretive things behind the scenes. And there's been a lot of backlash against that. We've that's been building over time. We want transparency. Why does Facebook own all our data? What are they doing with it? How does it impact elections, et cetera? All those things go along with that. And at the same time, underneath it, there've been a lot of these things around crypto and around these technologies, which have all their issues and all their concerns. But what they started building is the rails for a very different type of collective ownership, a type of collective governance that was all open source, all transparent. And it's met at this time right now where these tools have come together and web three is really about bringing these tools of ownership, of collective participation and governance, of enabling communities to have finance, to come together and reimagine whatever it is that they set their intentions on. So that is really web three. It is like empowering people and communities with the tools of governance, finance, and ownership. Some people have said, it's like, what if you gave uh, a Facebook group the chance to have governance and ownership and finance for whatever it is they chose to do? And it, it sounds ridiculous, but what we're seeing is how it plays out is the pace of innovation and how, back to that example around COVID, right, of communities organizing to sort things out for themselves. That's what we're seeing, but at a scale with these tools, unlike anything we've ever seen before. Right. So I can give an example too, yeah, maybe please. that, that, that helped with yeah. that. So there's one really practical one and 
people may under, may have heard these terms. So in, in web three, there's three common terms that are used, DeFi, DAOs, and NFTs. And DeFi is decentral, stands for decentralized finance. DAOs is decentralized autonomous organizations. And NFTs are non-fungible tokens, which is the least intuitive out of all of them. <laughs> and it really is like what it, it's like, like a web page. You can do anything with a web page now. Same thing. You can do anything with an NFT. But what they enable is they enable all these kind of patterns that we were just talking about. So I'll give you one example is a protocol called Klima, and you can check it out at klimadao.finance. And what's interesting about it is it's only it like from idea to now is probably four months old and it's only been live for about a month, but it used some existing open source software of a protocol that worked for someone else to create a market in the DeFi world and the pure crypto world. But they applied it to carbon credits. So they took this idea and said, well, if this protocol works, basically the underlying protocol works to encourage people to build up a treasury and then be able to provide liquidity to a currency that forms on top of that treasury. So it's like a marketplace making a market making mechanism and it encourages uh, people to come together and do that in solidarity to get this thing up off the ground so that it can get enough scale so that it can operate properly on its own. And so this group looked at it and went, well, this would be cool. What if we actually have got these carbon credits, carbon credit market out here that's stodgy, hard to access, slow carbon credits are way undervalued. They're mostly garbage. How do we actually, what if we could actually convince people to come in and en masse allow us to buy tons of carbon credits? and then drive the price of, of carbon credits, and then therefore make the market and the market start to work and accelerate the market of carbon credits as well. They copied the code, set it up, did it as a community. It went live one month ago and it's already, it's on track already. I think it's almost at 11 million tons of carbon credits that have been mm. pulled into their treasury. And they've already affected the global price of carbon upwards. And so this is, what's amazing about this is here was just some open source software that a group basically took, applied it to the, an existing market in the real world and used it to have a, a massive impact already in over the course of a month. None of this existed a year ago. This didn't exist. And they did it too, as a community, completely transparently, completely in the open. There's over 40,000 people now in this community. There's over 40,000 owners of the currency of Klima. Those people are all owners of the entire protocol. Those people all have the ability to vote on the entire protocol and where it goes and the policy changes it makes and what it's going to do next. And it's, it's hard to imagine if you, if we flip it to the conventional world. So outside web three, if you imagine take BlackRock or something, take one big finance shop and say, what if they they said, hey, we wanted to create a financial product that would impact the price of carbon? It would probably take minimum six months of development, maybe a year of development. It would be completely opaque. You would not know what the mechanisms that they were using. Maybe you could read about it. You couldn't see any of it. And they would, break, they would bring it into the market in a way that they owned it that nobody else could iterate on. It, it's, this is completely the upside down. You can see every single transaction. It's transparent. It's on chain. You can see every single contract and structure around the contracts and how they do it the whole way through it is entirely transparent yeah that's it's, it's really amazing i i think another example so that's an example of at a minimum a, a, a dao right so a, 
decentralized autonomous mm-hmm. organization, these, which is effectively a bunch of people coming together to operate under an agreed set of rules. And these rules yes. are written into the constitution, I guess, of the DAO on the blockchain. Is that fair? Am I getting this? I'm, I'm out of my depth a little they, bit on the technology side of it. A little softer than writing the rules into the blockchain, but it progressively grow towards that. They come together as a community, like really a Facebook group or a Twitter chat, or it, it starts that simple. They go into a community, they start deciding things together, and then they start integrating governance. How do they decide right. that? And then if they get into contracts, then they actually write those contracts, get expressed on the blockchain okay. in very clear, transparent ways. So it can start off really informal and grow more formal over time. That's right. So I think another great example, I don't know how many people caught it, but the, the Constitution DAO, which <laughs> I think with it, you correct me if I'm wrong, I think was within a week, it was brought together. Yep. They raised $40 million to buy one of the 13 remaining original copies of the U.S. Constitution. And the idea was that the people should own the, the, the one, at least one copy of the Constitution should be owned by the, the people at large and not by private collectors or, or companies. And yeah. so they raised, uh, Sotheby's was auctioning it. They expected to raise, to, if for to go roughly 20 million and Constitution Dow raised 40 million in a week. And ended up sadly losing the bid at, at auction to a private collector who outbid them, got it for 43 million. But the, just the demonstration alone of how quickly, yeah. to your point, how quickly people can organize, raise money and deploy it for a purpose is just incredible. It was mind boggling that that happened. And I think it was probably a mistake yeah. that they were maybe were public about how much money they had raised, but, but yeah, anyway, it, it's interesting. And even that it's a mistake that they were public and transparent, like the nature of these communities to yeah. be totally transparent. And yeah. so having to Fair interface enough. with the conventional world is, is that a, yeah, maybe it's not a mistake. It's just part of its right. by design. No, it, it, mis- it can, can definitely be looked at as a mistake to be able to win that auction. But it, what it reveals is the difference in the paradigms, yeah. right? The paradigms of the mainstream world and the paradigms of the web three world or the web two versus web three world is one, not the way to look at it. Yeah. And what enables, what enabled all that to happen is the inherent trust, right? Internet first, simple community, anybody can jump in. And the underlying tools for the fundraising, all transparent, all trust-based, and it's enabling of that trust that allows these things to grow at scale. And that is completely fascinating. The ability to parallel process that people can come together with teams working in parallel, trusting that they're all working to the same goal, coordinate loosely, enables these things to form with rapid speed in ways that are just really mind-blowing right and it's not just like before we were excited in web 2 with twitter and look how it allows people to organize around protests around a rally but this is the next level this is no people can organize to create a financial vehicle they can organize to create an organization that buys a physical asset they can organize to to buy an existing company because they don't like how it's running they can organize to create anything and do anything mm-hmm. that's available to them with those tools. So there's another example of one that's come up as well. Just recently, they're just closing their crowdfunding. They're using NFTs. So you can <laughs> buy an NFT as a ticket into the DAO, into the community. And their mission is to buy, their, their public mission is to buy an NBA team. And it's a really interesting example. It's a fairly large community already, but it's just got going and they're actually building instead of just build, it's not really about buying an NBA team on its own. It's about 
how do we create the tools for decentralized ownership and governance and operations of the professionals of professional sports? Because once you start looking at it that way, you start going, wait a minute, wouldn't that be way more effective or couldn't aspects of this be way more effective and wouldn't be these teams be more valuable if fans truly had a sense of ownership in them? Mm. What would it mean for players' rights and players' roles in the whole process of doing stuff? What would it mean for community engagement if these things were actually made up of people from the community? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And so they're using an NFT to crowdfund and then who knows where they go, but the momentum and the excitement around these kinds of things, once you start unpacking them or realize what these tools can enable, you start to start seeing how many ways could this be applied. And that's what gets really exciting. Yeah. It's not hard to see, I think, for the impact community that mm. communal ownership is, I think, a very attractive proposition. And if yeah. technology and tokenization is enabling us to share communal ownership and work yeah. together in community in ways that weren't possible before that should be highly attractive. And it's not to say there aren't challenges associated with 100%. these technologies in web three, but the possibility is pretty amazing and certainly worth exploring. And I think we were chatting in yeah. our previous chat that there's really no stopping the progress. So the only question is how we move forward through it in a responsible way to accentuate the positives and mitigate the negatives. Yeah, that's, that's exactly true. There's no, these tools are inherently permissionless and they're open source and they're out there. There's no putting it back in the bottle. And so it is very much that question. It feels like given the challenges that we're facing, if these tools hold some promise, there's an away from an, from an impact public benefit standpoint, if we care about that and we're trying to influence that, there's a, a bit of a responsibility. Certainly I feel to pay attention to the, them and to show up in them to try and apply them and encourage them and, and work with them in ways that lead to the kinds of the outcomes that actually matter for society. So if really what we're doing or suggesting that there may be hints of this, that we're trying to rewire society to be more sustainable, produce more well-being and, and prosperity for everyone, then let's show up and see how we can influence that. And, and as an investor, that's part of how we think about it too, is where can we make those bets and supports to invest in those kinds of things that will inherently and systematically lead to those kinds of outcomes going forward? Even like simple things, I'll just do this one other bit. There's, it's hard to, one of the things that can be hard, we're running actually an initiative called Super Benefit, which is to provide these, we call them Web3 adventure tours for people in the social systems innovation realm to show, to walk them through projects and experiments uh, uh, that are happening to get a feel for what's possible. And what's hard to communicate, but often shows up once people are starting to play or explore it a little bit more for uh, a little bit further is subtle things like governance being something that is, that communities do for themselves from the outside. It's not treated like, oh man, how do we minimize governance so we can actually do what we want to do? Mm -hmm. Or we have to do governance to control this thing. It, governance on its own is treated as, this is what allows us to be as quick and as scalable and as flexible as possible. It's good governance builds trust in our organization. And that simple paradigm shift is massive and particularly in venture too, where venture has often gone off the rails by favoring dictator style approaches. Give the founder all the control, give the, the yeah. 
it's a polar opposite what's coming up in these ecosystems now. It's pretty beautiful. Yeah. Historically, right. Give the Ivy League educated white man a lot of money to invest and he invests in Ivy League educated white men in Silicon yeah. Valley. And so you don't get a lot of diversity uh, as a result. I love the, I love right. that idea that it's like, he, it's a fee, governance is a feature, not a, an annoyance that has not to be, you know, mitigated somehow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it, it is a feature really that underpins what the, the ultimate value of these things are is the ultimate value is that if there's lots of participants in the system and it can scale with having more and more participants in the system, that means the system is valuable. And so that governance is central to enabling that. So it, it really is not, it's not, oh, we have to try and control this mm -hmm. thing and put it in the box. It's no, we want this to make sure that this thing doesn't go off the rails. Like. It's, right. it is, it's really cool. We can't organize really without cool. it. <laughs> we, we can't organize without it. Like we can't run things in parallel. We can only do without it. We can do very small teams that are very focused and that's it. But we can't do this kind of scalable collaboration. So to uh, just to, if folks are still, I found this helpful. <laughs> a friend gave this definition of a DAO, which is probably a little reductive, but uh, it's helpful if you're just trying to get your head around it. Think of it as a blockchain enabled co-op. And I just, before we move on, cause I don't want to stay on this the whole time. I'd love to get into your background and how you got here, but mm -hmm. because I think probably people are hearing the term MF NFT a lot, and we've talked a little bit around it. How would you define an NFT? And can you give a kind of example of what it allows, what kind of possibilities exist because of them? It, it's, uh, I did this tongue in cheek on a presentation, but I, I said, it's anything with ownership. So really uh, the anything part is an NFT can represent anything. It can represent a piece of art. It can represent music. It can represent your access to a venue. It can be anything that you want it to be, but what it brings is provable ownership that you are the owner. If you're the holder of it, it's yours and you can prove where it came from. Everyone that had it before the whole history. And that sounds simple and basic, but what it means for artists and creator is profound. Their ability to to com completely control the revenue around their work going forward, the, their ownership and rights to that work going forward has never been any, they've never had tools like this before. It also is an extremely creative vehicle, just like a website. So someone also said, think of it web page. We now, like at the beginning, when we first saw our first web page, it was like, oh, it's text on a, in a web browser, whatever we're calling this thing. That seems fine, like whatever. But now we go into a website and we can access our financial information through our bank. We, there's nothing we can't do through our website that we can't do in the digital world. Same thing with NFTs. They are going to expand to be able to provide whatever kinds of functionality that we want there. They're mini software programs effectively. So they're hard to understand because they're so useful, but the key feature is ownership. Yeah, just to, I'm going to give, maybe give you a bit of a layup here for you, because I think it's one of the first questions that comes up and it's maybe the most familiar application that if people have heard about NFTs, they, it's around art, digital art. It's, it certainly was for me. And one of the first questions that anybody asks when you hear about ownership of digital art is why in the world would somebody want to own a piece of digital art that anyone on the internet can see at any time. And so that seems crazy, but once you dig into it, it seems real clear that there's a lot of value in it. Maybe talk about that, unpack that. Yeah. And also so the implications for the artist of an NFT, the financial implications. Yeah, so, so it's funny. It's another one of the things like 
Sure. If I have an NFT, it's just a effectively a digital image. You can look at it that way. It's displayed on a website. JPEG, and so right? Anybody can, yeah, it's a JPEG. A GIF, right, a JPEG. Right what? click save, download yeah. it up to my desktop. Ha ha, I own your art. No, you don't own the art. So if we go back to, if we go back to what a conventional art piece of art is, if I go to a gallery and I buy a piece of art that the gallery just happened to own, the gallery is telling me that it really came from this artist and they maybe have a document that says it was, which was verified by who, how do I know that's actually what it is. So that's one thing we don't really know that stuff to be true other than a trust-based agreement that I trust the gallery owner to provide real paper and that whoever verified it behind to, to create that paper is telling the truth. So that's really flaky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if we think about it. The contrast in the NFT is if I own that NFT, I can look to the contract on the public blockchain that shows every transaction that led to the creation that from the creation of that NFT all the way through and behind every transaction, there is the counterparty of that transaction. So from the beginning, I get who was the creator of that's provable now, mm -hmm. right? So that it creates an absolutely public, immutable, transparent record of history of ownership. The provenance is there. For art, for artists, they've never had anything like that. So somebody who right-clicked saved on that JPEG and says, I own this thing, it's worth this much. I was like, okay, let me see the history. And if you can't prove the history, you don't, you don't, you're not the owner in this world. So it ensures that for artists that they wanna create something in this world, if they mint it as an NFT, they can guarantee that their actual art is the thing that is provable and true. And what that also means with these contracts is they can ensure that every time that art is sold, they could have a revenue share that comes back to them. So that can be baked into the contract of that. That's right. really important for artists to be able to continue making money of their art being resold and resold. In the rest of the world, if I sell it to my neighbor, the artist never sees any of that. In this where it's programmable and sure. So those are some examples of that piece of it. The other part of it is if that art is in my home, where's the marketplace for that? How do I know what it's worth? How can I sell it? If I really want to sell it, can I sell it? I don't know. There's no way to do that. If I want to display it, if I want it on my phone to look at when I'm traveling, if I want to share it with my friends, look how cool this piece of art is. I can't do that. Like not easily. NFTs being tradable, being online, it creates an instant marketplace for the art. That's global, that's accessible, it's transparent. You can show it in any place. It's all available to the artist. And that is profoundly different for artists. Yeah, the economics of the, that artist doesn't have to essentially live in poverty and wait until they, they make a little bit of money off of the art when they first create yeah. it because they're maybe not all that well known. And as they become more successful and popular, the demand for their art goes up and yeah. They never see another dime from it because they sold it back when they were, you know, weren't a big name yet. And this now allows them to take, as you say, a, a percentage of each subsequent sale, you know, as it moves from one owner to the next over time, which is you're really liberating for the artists. Yeah. There's one other dynamic that is really interesting. If, if I'll yeah, just please. take a minute and maybe we'll go around the rabbit hole, but that the NFT that when I buy an NFT, I'm usually buying it from a marketplace already. When I buy it, it's still part of that marketplace in that I own it. I control whether or not I sell it, but people can make offers on it. So it's like this painting on my wall that I think is really valuable. 
I have real-time market signal if anybody else finds that valuable. And why that's important is because it changes a decision on whether or not to purchase a piece of art. Once you are familiar with this ecosystem, people are buying it because I think this is valuable. I love this art. I want to collect it. Sometimes it leads into speculation. That's obviously a part of this ecosystem. But it changes the dynamic of, yeah, I'm spending this money to... No, I'm really making an investment and that maybe over time, it could be worth more if I ever wanted to sell that. Right. And for artists in the early stages, it allows people to make a bet earlier on artists as well that they want to support because right. you can also then share that art with more people. Hey, look at this cool thing I did. By the way, you can go buy one as well mm. over here directly. You don't have to go to the gallery. You don't have to go find the artist. Buy it right here. Here's where the artist lives online and where you can buy their art. All those things change the, the the landscape for artists massively. Yeah, as you say, if I want to support if I want to support that artist, I can do that. I can do that by buying. Maybe I just maybe I just want to support them and have the, them to have the money from that piece, and I'm happy enough to have it. But it's like there's a lot of different reasons why you might own the digital art. And owning art, one of the common ones I get is, well, if anybody can just copy it, then can't sit in your house and and all that. Like, <laughs> why would anybody do that? I've had that reaction from friends and. I think that you know, there's a lot of different reasons why people own art. They own it as an investment. They own it for prestige. They own it for, and then, mm -hmm. so that's a, with digital art, that's all true. I'm the owner of record and I can say that I own that's prestigious, but also the, as we move more and more of our lives, digital, yeah. being able to have that original piece in imagine a world like the metaverse that one or that Facebook was teasing yeah. with their conversion where you're, you've got a digital home that you spend time in and that you have friends over and you spend time in this room yeah. and you've got this original art on your wall, that becomes more and more like having the actual art in your home. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It's funny. It's funny. It, 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 the paradigm flips a little bit. Yeah. 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 Thank you for that. And indulging me on that <laughs> rabbit hole. There's a lot more, obviously that could be said. I was on, I'll just drop this reference and I'll put it in the show notes, but I, Tim Ferriss interview with Naval Ravikant yeah. and Chris Dixon, and they do have a good discussion of it. It goes fast. I actually had to, normally I speed up the podcast. I had to slow it down because Naval and Chris are fast talkers, <laughs> yeah. but, but it's a great, I'll put the link in the show notes. It's a great resource for getting your head around the opportunities in web three. If we can change gears, tell you about, tell us about your history. You've got a fascinating history of, from a lot of different ventures. You're a couple time founder. Walk us through your kind of origin story. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So I, I started out right out of university and consulting and then quickly said, no, thanks. Went into, created a, what became a design company, grew that, that ended up getting acquired. And then I flipped into sustainable coffee and ended up in clean tech and on the venture side as a venture partner in, in a firm here in Canada and incubated a couple of companies through that. One of which was a thermal energy company that I continued with wrote a patent on thermal energy technology that was acquired and then found myself in the social finance world, which I knew nothing about. And that was in 2007, 2008 and helped lay the foundations for what then got taken up to become the center for impact investing. It's when I met Kareem at that time when around building social finance.ca, et cetera. And that's at Mars uh, here in Toronto, right? That's at Mars here in Toronto. That's right. And so. It's at that point that I started getting really interested in what does it, what does it mean for the, the society? What does it mean to actually shift society forward? Because 
early signs of, yeah, we need to make some changes. And so impact investing was one realm of that, that I was interested in. Then digital technology became another. And I spent a lot of time really exploring those realms of social systems, innovation, applying digital technology, starting to code applications, designing protocols and stuff, et cetera. And then about three years ago, I started seeing mainstream venture capital firms, like some of the biggest, most prolific, prominent venture firms starting to invest in companies that looked a lot like what we used to talk about as social impact firms. And so I really started wondering is, well, what's going on here? And that's what kind of started our journey around possibility and was recognizing that these firms were doing that and they weren't doing it out of altruism. They were doing it because those were the interesting founders that were coming to them and they were addressing solutions that reflected the problems that were they were facing in society. It's not altruistic. It was purely motivated around this is where the opportunity set is shifting. And so that's what really brought me back to the idea of, wait a minute, maybe there's a window opening up here again, where we can leverage venture again as a lever to accelerate our pace of societal transition of, of getting us to a place that is more sustainable with greater well-being and prosperity for all. And so first person I read, reached out to, of course, was Kareem to say, Hey, is there something, do you want to explore this? And that's the journey that we've been on. Can you everybody a little bit about Kareem? They may not know his background. Yeah. Kareem is a gem of a human. We'll start, I'll start with that. In impact circles, but I'm sure not everybody on the podcast knows him. Yes. Kareem is, was co-founder of Purpose Capital, which now Rally Assets, one of the, the leading impact investment advisory firms here in Canada. He currently, he's gone on to do a lot of deep work in impact measurement and management, working with a number of large foundations and some really interesting projects, but currently is Oxford's impact measurement and management program and is working on his PhD around impact management. So he's very deep onto the impact side. And what I was excited about is us coming together is saying, if venture is, is a potential intervention point for creating the future and nudging the future forward. What would it look like for us to come at that from a lens of deep understanding about potential impacts, how impacts manifest and how we leverage, look at, think about technology and venture as a process for unlocking those benefits at a, at a systems level, right? So going for really transformative impacts and could we use venture capital as a tool to explore that? So that's really where that came together. The other part that I'll share that's a little bit unique and I, I tend to forget about it is. Both of us are very, we spent a lot of time on as either as entrepreneurs or on the capital advisory side or, and venture advisory side, but we also have, have do a lot of field building work. It's in our nature and how we come back to it. And it's an interesting time to bring that into how we approach the firm because more and more, this is about like with our super benefit initiative, it's, this is more like movement building and world building than it ever has been for, but before it's not a. It's not a hard analytical financial de investment decisions. These are not the types of things that are happening right now. It's really, how do we come together? How do we bring networks and communities together to understand and start to craft this future? And within those things, where are the opportunities for us to invest and find those best opportunities to do, have the real leveraged ultimate impact that we're hoping to achieve? Yeah, that's, I love that. So. Let's dive into a little bit more of the thesis and how your how that plays out at, mm. at Possibility and you in uh, kind of break down the disruptive technologies you're seeing into five buckets. So AI, DNA sequencing, robotics, energy storage, yeah. and blockchain. And we've talked to blockchain as all the 
Web3 NFT, decentralized finance, but maybe un unpack those things a little bit. And then if you can, maybe we can talk about some of the portfolio companies or some of the investments that you've made that sort of play off of those. Yeah. So we lifted that. We lift our ideas from everyone. We're, sure. We're I think we all do, by the way. I think we just like, <laughs> if you can add an extra wrinkle on top of another idea. Yeah. That's, we're riding waves. So that, that analysis came from ARK Invest and they produced a paper called Disruptive Innovation. It was actually really interesting as a, as an analysis of historical trends of technological innovation. And what's interesting about this time and those five areas all relate to these sets of tech, of fundamental general purpose technologies that are coming, that the cost curves are coming down to, they're getting into mainstream markets at the same time. And each of them is, has this, these ranges of application that could have massively transformative impacts if it were just them individually on their own, yeah. in their own industries. But it's them coming together that creates this foundation for a level of innovation that is, that is, that is profoundly new and high rapid paced. So even on an economic unlock analysis, we're clearly into a technological innovation moment in history where we can leverage technology at a level that we've not been able to do. So that's part of what I think is driving the venture asset class as a whole to be outperforming and scaling and growing the way it is because we're seeing all these new technologies coming to market, which leads to entrepreneurs finding interesting ways to apply them in all kinds of different industries and markets. So, and if I could just pause there on that, like that's a staggering thing, right? That in, in a world where we've all seen just radical innovation and technological progress, that we're now yeah. reaching a point where potentially we're going to see technologies come together that are going to make what we've seen up to this point seem rather quaint. Is that? Yeah. And I think so. And I, I also think though, it's, it, I think that the mark of real technology adoption is when it becomes invisible Yeah, and invisible, not in the hidden way, but it's just like you use something or experience something that is completely different, but it makes total sense. What, why wouldn't we have done this way all the time? That's the mark of these technologies becoming mainstream and being adopted in just behind the scenes way, ways that I think is what's going to be really interesting. Like the whole web three stuff is these are very basic fundamental technologies They're not really anything like they're not rocket science, radically new, but what they enable people to do can be radically different. And so I think that's the wave we're about to head into, whether it be IOT or AI showing up in ways that are super, super interesting. IOT being internet of things, which is like connecting, Correct. uh, through why, whatever, through digital ways, connecting different devices to be able to speak to one another and yeah, act in exactly. And that going with robotics, mean drones, what, whatever, all these different things, it, they're transforming all kinds of all our landscapes across every sector and industry that we have. Yeah. What you said about it being invisible and not in a hidden way that I think the parallel, not that I wear a lot of makeup, but makeup is it's the same idea, right? Like when you wear makeup, mm. the idea is that you don't really notice it's there. It accentuates, it enhances your you yes. know, face in the way that you want it to, but you don't yeah. see it. And that's what I, I imagine you're getting at with technology. It's not in your face. It's making everything yeah. easier. It's allowing you to accomplish what you want to without you even almost noticing it because it's so simple and so easy to use at the user level. Yeah. And I think that's, there's also a difference is getting away from the techno solutionism as well. So people think about technology as, oh, this, mm -hmm. this one piece of technology is going to save the world. It's, no, we're like, we're moving beyond that. It's what are we trying to, and this I think links to the other part is 
what are we trying to create and accomplish? The technology is the enabler. Forget about the technology. We'll pick up whatever's available to us to achieve that goal now. Yeah. And that's what's interesting because those kinds of things mm -hmm. are the opportunities to re-architect our industries, our societies, our economies in ways that are compatible with the future that we need to have to survive. Yeah, actually, I, so I love that because that's an additional angle that I hadn't been considering you know, or, or dimension to that that I hadn't been considering, which it felt that it really felt that way to me. And then I'm old enough to have been investing in the late 90s when the Internet was first becoming mainstream. And you had every company and their mother <laughs> company moving into the Internet and called Internet companies or you know, tech companies. It's not, technology is not a thing to to do for the sake of technology it's what it allows you to accomplish and if we're yeah. translating that let's be about solving a problem and we use technology to solve those yeah. problems we're not a technology company every company is a technology company who's That's not right. utilizing technology in some way and so i i love that because it does still feel like there are tech companies that are more in love with the technology yeah. than they are about the problem they're solving and, and there are certain cases like and in, in, in companies that we invest in as well that are technology focused. So if you get sure. into deep energy technology, that's still really important. But what's even in those cases, what's often making what they're building possible is advances in those underlying technologies, right? That AI is all of a sudden super, is allows them to achieve a performance never before possible in this device that they're creating. So. All these things are enabling even core technology development, even when it is about the technology to happen in ways that level them up to, again, to achieve fundamental changes in society. Love it. Can you give some examples of either portfolio companies or if they're not portfolio companies, just companies you've come across that allow that are, are utilizing some of these technologies to solve systemic for systemic change? Yeah, so I, I can love all our companies. <laughs> you can give a few. I don't feel like you need to. Yeah, ClimateX is wonderful. It is a company that leverages artificial intelligence to basically build a digital twin of the earth. So being able to actually use all these incredible streams of data that are coming online about our environment, about climate, about buildings and infrastructure to be able to create these then models that others can start to interpret what the impacts of climate change and transition is going to be on those physical assets or infrastructure. And it, it, it sounds really basic in a way, but if we are going to adapt to the changes of climate, there's going to be a lot of change. There's going to be impacts for people that can't afford to have impacts. There's going to be impacts for our governments, for financial markets. And so enabling this kind of data that allows us to get clearer on how those impacts happen on a granular micro level down to a building level down to uh, like down to an individual's home down to a piece of highway is absolutely essential if we are able to if we want to make smarter financial decisions and protect those who are the most vulnerable so it wasn't possible to do this stuff both there's data, the amount of data that's coming in from satellite data etc that data hasn't been available before, but not only that data, the technology to be able to interpret that data in a way that's actionable for specific things related to climate transition. It's simple. Like people aren't going to be using the AI. They're going to be using the intelligence that comes out of it to make decisions in the real world. Does that 
Uh, I, and I get out of my depth in the, in the, as we deeper, we go into the technological discussion, but does it rely on quantum computing at all or no? Like the amount of data is, um, no, you um, can crunch those numbers on existing, I don't know what the yeah. opposite of quantum computing is. This is solid <laughs> state. No, <laughs> but, but so what I will say is that this is the wonderful thing about technology is if we think about there's this causal inference is a, a domain of AI that actually bases on a lot of things in, in quantum computing. And as this platform improves and as those technologies improve, it becomes trivial for them to adopt that next wave of artificial intelligence into their analysis and their models is it's like, as the tech, this wave of technology comes home to roost IOT sensors, right? So sensors out in the fields, capturing more data. All these things feed into the opportunity for that company to deliver on the desired goals that they're trying to achieve, enable smart, effective transition, mitigating risks and enabling society to thrive and survive through it. So it's just, I, yeah, no, that's really interesting. Do you have any, any other examples you want to? Yeah. Another company, I'm just trying to think which ones I can talk about, uh, live micro Terra is a really interesting example. It is a company that are out of Mexico and they use plant, they create plant protein from the production of lemna. So they grow this pro, they grow this lemna. What they is grow lemna? It though? Lemna is like a, like an algae, like a oh. small little plant that can grow in water ecosystems really easily. And their approach is actually fascinating in that they do it in cooperation with aquaculture farmers to grow this at scale. So there's lots of aquaculture farms. It provides additional revenue to the farmers. It cleans the actual source water from those aquaculture farms. It inherently leads to a cost profile for the lemna that they produce. That's three to five times cheaper. And why I bring this up as an example is thinking from a systems perspective of how can you design and create products that are integrated with communities and other stakeholders can provide material benefits to the business and the model of the business itself. What they can do with that is amazing, but the end product is absolutely central to us being able to go to a plant-based future, which is also about decarbonization impacts around cattle and meat production. It is about water, water cleanliness. It is about health. It is about nutrition and nutrition for growing, uh, global markets, et cetera. Like these things spread across all kinds of industries. And when founders today that we see come at something from a systems point of view, they see the world a little bit differently and design for it in ways that can have outsized benefits to their business itself. That's fascinating. Are you, are you seeing opportunities right now in the web three space or is this sort of just on your radar and kind of yeah. potential future yes. opportunities? <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting you ask that and web three as an idea is fairly new yeah. in, in like in, in the attention. There are a lot of web three opportunities that are coming up right now. I can't talk about which ones that we're, we're actively looking at, but what I also note is that a number of the companies that we work with and founders that we are talking to are all thinking about how does web three apply to their business and where they're going and their future of what they're doing. 
I think we are going to see a big trend, just like we saw every company saying, oh, I've got to have a mobile strategy. I've got to have a Web3 strategy. But the difference this time is that Web3 at its core is about distributing ownership and control to the stakeholders and the ecosystem. And so the, the shift that's going to enable is going to be fascinating in ways that at first venture investors or people in familiar with venture will be like, oh my God, no, how can we give away ownership to, right. to people? Mm -mm. It, once people start to see, I think, how this plays out and what this means for enabling an ecosystem or economy that collectively builds significantly more value from the collective participation and incentive structures that they can create, we're going to see companies that will leverage those kinds of models in ways that inherently are better for the people that they work with, for their users, for their customers, for all those stakeholders that are involved with them. It's just the beginning. Yeah. Very interesting. I, as I, I think, and if it plays out the way that I would hope that it would, I think you, know, a lot of existing centralized ownership are going to have to Probably, I, I would hope we won't have a whole lot of choice. You have increasingly, I think, the younger demographics, generations, I think, are more values aligned with collaborative and yeah. communal ownership to solve these problems. And so if you have the best minds leaving the Facebooks and the Twitters to go build on Web3, eventually you, you get this brain drain. And even if you don't want to, to give up that control and power, you may not have a choice in, in the future. So I, I, anyway, I hope that's how it plays out, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think one, one statement that I think was, it was either Chris Dixon or Naval, I think that said this, but for every platform, web two platform that's out there is your take rate is my opportunity, right? So every platform that takes right. something from its users is at risk of being recreated in web three and partly because the technology behind those companies is now, again, diffused, simple, easier to do. So the technology isn't the barrier and the technology that's now available allows inherently in it the distributed ownership and collective participation that people really actually do want. Yeah, yeah that's very, that's really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to impact measurement and, and management? How are you guys thinking about that in, in your context? Especially yeah. with Karima on board, you have a PhD in, in, in this uh, area. It's fascinating. It's been a real journey to, to explore what does it mean to, as an investor, to enable impact both as a fund and within each portfolio company. So part of our approach has been, we use, obviously, we, we come at it from thinking about impact to understand the potential long-term outcomes and implications of company. It's baked into how we screen and how we think about the companies that we engage with. As a firm too, let me start, let me go stick with, with the companies for a second. The other thing that we've seen and we know from working with hundreds of early stage companies and founders is the process of trying to integrate impact measurement and management early in the life cycle of a company is extremely difficult. It's opaque, it's confusing, and it's, it, it's hard. There's big barriers to doing that. And most of these companies are too early to do what we would consider best impact practice. Yeah. But what matters here and how we approach it is let's productize. We have another initiative called Venture Better, which has been about productizing the resources and tools for impact measurement and management to make them accessible and useful to our to portfolio companies mm. at any company at the same time. 
So that's a first start point is remove, try and remove the barriers to adopting this stuff. The second is it's the basis of our conversation with founders is what are the long-term impacts that they're trying to have? How are they changing the world? And that's how we resonate with the founders. We, we then show up not as let's try and force the founders to do certain things or achieve certain impact measurement or metrics that are important to us, but how do we be there as a partner for them to understand the dynamics that are playing out in their company and optimize those towards achieving the outcomes that they themselves believe to be important and lead to the, the, what it is that they're trying to accomplish. So we're there, we're building, continually building the resources to make it available and easier for them. And that's the kind of, it's like free services that are available to our, our portfolio whenever they need it. And if we're good at doing it, then those resources become available more broadly to the broader ecosystem as well. So that's the part that how we think about our impact more broadly too, as a firm, how do we back to the field building stuff? So what can we do to help others that are curious and interested in this space and adopting either adopting impact measurement and management in their firm as a VC or as a company, I venture themselves, or for those that are interested in systems and social innovation, trying to explore how does web three allow us to design and do things differently? We just keep trying to build our collective capacity to move forward. And through that, we fundamentally believe it puts us in a position to be able to be good investors in, in some of the most interesting upcoming things. I love the focus on the field building and how do we get others to come along on this, on this journey to move the whole market forward. It's an aspect of venture capital that I suspect is been absent, and not just venture capital, but I think the investment industry as a whole is absent yeah. from traditional kind of investment approaches. And yeah, I think speaks to your focus on, on real impact. Can you, are you guys are, are raising capital now? Can you talk about the investors that yeah. you look for and how that kind of, who, who, what types of investors you look for and the capital you're trying to raise? And yeah, it's actually a really interesting thing. So part of what we're doing with possibility is, is using what is a fairly new structure itself, which is interesting in its own right. We're seeing a lot of innovation in the venture capital administration and on the fund side as well. So we're raising it in through what's called a rolling fund. And that allows us to be raising and investing at the same time. And it turns LP subscription. So our, how people can invest with us into a subscription product. So as an LP, you can come in and invest in a certain number of quarters for as long as you want to at a level that is comfortable for you. You can adjust that over time. You can move it up and down over time, et cetera. And it really changed the dynamics between the investors and us as a fund. It's not a, let's raise one big pool of capital up front and then, okay, LPs will maybe report to you every once in a while, but we'll come back to you in two years when we're raising the next fund. It is a, for us, we see it as a part of bringing a community of LPs that are interested in exploring these frontiers with us together and learning at whatever level that they're interested in. So if they want to come in and deep dive into these companies, into the topics and things that we're seeing, we totally welcome that. And that's why we do all our field building work, but that's the structure and how it works. So an LP can come in on a quarterly subscription basis. Our LPs tend to be individuals, founders, other fund managers as well. We've had people in the wealth management industry. On the impact side investing, we have family offices and we're exploring to see our first institutionals possibly coming on board. It's a new structure that's harder for some to engage with, but it's really designed to be a lot more inclusive and 
welcome people in simpler, easier ways. That's that real. Yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> for sure. It's very interesting. Where can people find out more about? Right on our site at possibilion.vc uh, is a great place to go. There are links there to the invest. You can schedule a call. You can download our deck. We're pretty darn transparent about how we operate as much as we can within the confines of still having to protect privacy of transactions, et cetera. But we're always open to having a conversation. Uh, you can actually see the investment docs and everything around the fund are a short couple of clicks away on the site itself. It's a very different paradigm, but we're there. We're happy to talk to anybody. <laughs> I love it. I'll link to it in the show notes as well. So people can find you there. Maybe last question, because I want to be cognizant of your, of your time. What do you think is realistically possible? Uh, what do you hope to achieve? Not just possibilian, but where do you see or see impact going on these climate and, and, and inequality, these kind of two big existential threats you're working on. What do you think is possible in the next 10 years? Well, An optimistic my scenario. We, my bet is we reinvent society because if we don't, we're screwed really quite frankly. And I think impact and venture are our two biggest levers to getting there because impact really is about understanding the cause and effect scenarios and situations and being intentional about where we're going so that we get to that next version of society that's going to work. And venture is a tool to catalyze and accelerate it. And our bet is entirely on like, how do we build that future? And like, I sometimes talk about it as like the portfolio construction is not about smart analytical investment, financial decisions. It's about world building. It is really about making bets on what are the infrastructure of the future? What does this future world look like? And how do we create it? Because that's the game that we're in right now, collectively as society. We have to create that future if we're going to survive. That's really interesting. Do you think, what would you see, best as you're going to describe practically, what, what could you see happening? So we have new sources of technology. We've got more, yeah. I'm just giving examples, more sustainable methods of food production, entirely new ownership structures that are communal that sort of take the pressure off this relentless profit growth. Uh, I don't know. I'm just giving examples, yeah. but. Yes, all of it. And this is what's so amazing about this time is we can't, it's harder than ever to know what that's going to look like, but everything is up for change. Our supply chains, how we grow food, where we grow food, who is involved in production, how production happens. Like there, there isn't anything that is, is poised to go unchanged. It's like, I've been in venture a long time and I've loved it because it's, because of its potential and what it means and, and this, this aspiration and hope to create the future. But there's never been a time like this that we have the possibilities. And it's not just because we have the technical capabilities, we have the urgency and need to do it. Cultural willingness and desire for change, for a world that actually works for all of us is there. Like it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's all the things that we've hoped for in the impact sector in the past, like from the roots, from the beginning of, we want people to care. We want to be able to do bold new solutions that center people, that center equity, that are equitable for all that change the imbalances. The, this moment is that. This is that moment and the potential to do it. The tools and the examples are all showing up. There's nothing more exciting than talking to the founders that are radically reimagining these futures. And, and it's, venture has been cynical in the past. I've been cynical in the past. Impact can be cynical. Like we could all be cynical. 
but seeing how these founders are thinking about the kind of world that they want, who's involved and who's included in that and what it means is, yeah, I, I get speechless about it because it's, I mean, we need it and it's, Feels it's possible. never been more possible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I remind myself, I think I can't remember where I heard this probably on a podcast somewhere, but change isn't linear and we've gone through a period of rather linear sort of change on the impact yes. front. But it does yes. feel like we're at a tipping point where if you are the establishment, it, you must feel like the barbarians are at the gate, right? Because you're just from every possible angle, there are entrepreneurs working in way in new ways to solve problems yes. in new ways that could fundamentally disrupt your yeah. position of, of power and, 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 and ownership. And, and so it does really feel like we're at a turning point of potential revolutionary change. I have debates with friends about, not debates, but with discussions about whether we can see the type of change that we need peacefully. Because historically it has, you know, is, is rarely ever come peacefully. And I'm hopeful that it that's, can. And I think technology can make that possible. That's the race we're up against. I like, I think on those existential risk curves, climate is, or climate is a catalyst, but it's inequality that threatens us more than anything else. And fundamentally, I see it in the, people know it, like people know it, people understand it. The founders that we talk to, they, it's in, it's inherent in their fabric and their belief. And I think in a way, like this is the golden age for impact, even our conventional, uh, understanding of impact, because like governance in web three is the something that you just inherently do because it makes it better. We keep hearing founders, they may not use the language of impact, but impact is going to be central to everything. Understanding the world from these perspectives for achieving those kinds of outcomes is going to be central to it. It may not fit the way that we, that our standards that we want to control with standards and, and everything else. But I think we're heading into the golden age of impact because it's, it's what, why people will do what they do. Michael, thank you so much for coming on and talking uh, about all this. It's been a fascinating, uh, learning uh, journey for me and I, hopefully for the listeners as well, we'll have to uh, have to have you guys back on again down the road and talk about the advances and developments we're seeing. David, real pleasure. Thanks for having me on and for sharing, allowing me to share this stuff. I hope it was helpful. For sure. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.